talking about in terms of standing firm and living in hope. Uh, so it's Psalm 71. It's about an older person who feels like the world is against them, him or her. Likely David in his old age. In Psalm 71, he says this, and this is our prayer. Do not cast me away when I'm old. Do not forsake me when my strength is gone. For my enemies speak against me. Those who wait to kill me conspire together. They say God has forsaken him. Pursue him and seize him, for no one will rescue him. Do not be far from me, my God. Come quickly, God, to help me. May my accusers perish in shame. May those who want to harm me be covered with scorn disgrace. As for me, I will always have hope. I will praise you more and more. That is our prayer for today. Amen. And uh, we're in a series, again, finishing well. And one of the presuppositions of series is that there's two races that you could run. One race is with God. The other race is essentially without God. And there's a false assumption, maybe a false dichotomy or false gospel that comes with this idea of two races. And that's this, is that if life is going well, then you're with God. God's favor is on you. Conversely, if life has some real lows in it, then God is not with you that you're without God, and that is untrue. That is untrue. And we know that cognitively in our head, but the best of us, the greatest of us, experientially can think there's something off about us or off about the world or even off about God when times seem low. And if you've been with us, we've preached about pain and suffering. We do it pretty, com- pretty consistently because it is consistent. Um, there's a mystery about God being the giver of good gifts, and God being with us in the real lows. But the truth remains, when things get bad, we tend to fixate on the bad. We tend to just focus, have a hyper-focus when things are going wrong. So the question is, like, what is an area of your life where you may be experiencing anxiety, fear, or despair right now? You might know, like, I have hope, God reigns, but your mind seems to fixate. For me, it's around finances. As most of you know, I'm, I'm in a housing project, and I've become more and more anxious about the budget, the monthly budget, and the construction costs. And I get that it's a quote-unquote first-world problem, but that's a problem in the first world that I have. You know what I mean? So it's like, that's where I'm at. And uh, you know, with contractors to pay and returns to do and Christmas coming, I, I can quickly become fixated on it, trying to have control over it. And, and most, if not all of it's irrational, because I, I, I believe it's something that's insurmountable, left unchecked, left without prayer. And it could be tempting for me, this is a temptation that's new to me, is to skip out on generosity. It's like this new temptation where I've moved from like giving monthly to moving to more quarterly and catching up. I haven't given up on it, but it's tempting to give up on it when times see hard. And economically, it can feel like that for a lot of us. We're in a bit of a storm right now. You don't know what the news will tell you, whether it's a recession or a correction or a potential depression. Either way, it's depressing. It is. So as we sit around tables, and I'm going to go grab some food and munchies for us, what is an area of your life where you may be experiencing some fear, anxiety, or even despair? Take a moment to share around as boldly as you want. All right. Thank <laughs> you.
So we're going to carry on. There should be some good sweets. One more minute for my man Gregory. I took a bite, so you got to talk more. Need something to drink. How about you, Labor? Anything? Not really. Of course you don't have anything. Good. Praise the Lord. All right. Greg, you good? All right. Hey, Drew, are we recording? Sweet. Okay, sorry, Larry. <laughs> so the question we're asking today is how do we carry on when in times in trouble? How do we carry on in times in trouble? Because that will happen as we seek to finish well. And as I prepare this homily, and I don't typically do this in the past, but I mentioned that word fixation. And I wanted to just name the reality of those who experience mental illness. I don't talk about this enough in my message, and for that I'm sorry. But silence actually can stigmatize those who carry this plate and this disease. And for some of those in our world, in our orbits, maybe in ourselves, being fixated isn't something you can just preach about and magically it's healed. I'm not saying magically, but spiritually it's healed. And so I just want to hold that intention as we consider those in our orbit. And I was given advice um, for someone in my life who I love who struggles in this arena is that thank God for the good days and there'll be good days. That's for all of us, but it's really helpful in that conversation. And this matters too. There will be a brighter day. There will be a brighter day. So I just want to acknowledge that reality. And if that's someone, if, if you experience or have had some experience in that arena, we, we want to help you, we want to offer resources to you. And we don't want to dismiss um, that plight. Uh, that said, we're moving into Matthew 24. And I want to keep it short. But this is like one of the most complicated chapters in the Gospels. So the way that I'm going to keep it short is we're going to travel through this gospel. I'm going to give some commentary. I'm going to, it's going to provide two real implications for us. Um, and then I'm going to, it has a warning for us as well. Make sense? The question is, how do we carry on in these times of trouble? The reason why Matthew 24 is complicated and, and very scrutinized and overanalyzed is because it has these end times implications. Anybody know end times? I love movies about quote unquote end times, like Terminator and Matrix, all that stuff. End times, another word, is eschatological uh, implications. And maybe that doesn't seem, that seems like up here, it's talking about Christ's return. It actually doesn't talk about Christ's return as much as we think it talks about it. Um, but sometimes we get so fixated in our times of trouble on the end times that we lose today and we, we fixate on predicting. You've been around those predictions of billboards of when this will happen, when it's actually a lot less about that and more about what's happening in Jesus' day and the destruction of the temple. We're going to talk about that. Um, but I, I feel like I should give a brief timeline chronologically, biblically, theologically uh, of the scriptural story that goes through today just so you understand, because I just said 
eschatological end times. And so here's what we believe. If you're part of the Christian worldview, you believe that history begins, and there's a timeline with creation. There it is. Uh, that God created humanity's image, and it was really, really good, that we are sacred beings. Soon thereafter, there's not a timetable. Creation experienced brokenness when the OG humanity chose to use their volition to put themselves up above God. Immediately after the brokenness, there's a promise, even in the midst of our earliest defiance, that God will destroy evil and he will redeem, reconcile, and restore his creation. We who trust in him and our planet, that this restoration is earthly. And because God is not coercive, God's plan is engineered through a people, with the people and through a people. And that, that's the covenant that he establishes first with the patriarch Abraham and later Israel, the people of Israel, and then ultimately David through his line. And that's where covenant law is established and will eventually be written on our hearts through God's medium. I'm talking about the Old Testament. As with all people, ourselves included, Israel rebelled. Rebellion still remains in the heart of God's people, even as he gives us a written covenant. And they chose national power over being a light to the nations, which is very tempting for all of us to choose national power over being a light to all people. Loved by God, they lamented in exile. They were pushed to exile, but even in the midst of exile, there was prophetic hope, a promised hope that God will restore all things. And we find that through grace. Century of waiting, grace comes in the form of Jesus. He models a life we deeply desire. He offers us life through the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the question is, what about Israel? I wanted to mention that real quickly. Well, as you remember last week, if you're with us, we read then to Matthew 22, where, or I'm sorry, Matthew 23, where these woes crescendo into the statement by Jesus. At the end, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. This is God's love for his people. Look, your house has left you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. For those who did receive God, Jerusalem, the Israelites, they participated in what has now become this age of the Spirit, where the Spirit was given a Pentecost, the age of the early church, or as I wrote, I think the next one on the timeline is Spirit-filled church. And we live in the midst of the Spirit-filled church. We are not perfect. The church is not perfect, but it is God's work that he's carrying to completion as we are God's work that he's carrying to completion. And we wait as we effort towards God's kingdom in the midst of a painful world, world because God's not coercive. He's not going to He's, he's going to lovingly and unforcefully work in a hurting and, yes, sinful worlds so that all people have an opportunity to reach out to him and perhaps find him, though he's not far from any one of us, as the Apostle Paul says. I don't know how that works. I'm sure there's a lot of questions about whether truly God can know them. I know God is fair, good, and loving, and just. The last stage is this internal kingdom that happens when Christ comes, his second coming, where he will right all wrongs, bring final judgment, and establish a new heaven and a new earth. God's people will not be his servants. God's servants, we will actually be extended family together. 
and throughout history, people have become fixated so much on this eternal kingdom that they miss out on the opportunity to participate in a spirit-filled church. So we don't want to fixate on the end times because we don't know when it's going to happen. Jesus himself, in his earthly ministry, noted that he doesn't know when it's going to happen. He says in Matthew 24, 36, but about the day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And I'm sure that brings up a lot of questions that I'm not going to address in terms of the Trinitarian experience. But what I want to say as we travel through 24, it's less about, it's less about end times and more about standing firm. And I think there's a lot for us as we seek to finish well. It's less about Christ's return and more about the destruction of the temple and the implication that it has for God's people. So uh, we're going to read that. We're going to read that as we are in the midst of Holy Week, as we travel through Matthew 21 through 28. We're not in Holy Week, but the Scriptures is. And his people are, are marveling at this temple. It's the second temple that's been built after the exile. In fact, Herod did some renovations. It's an amazing structure, one of the wonders of the ancient world, a, a landmark for Israel. It's like their national heritage is in this temple, 150 feet high, football fields wide. It's not one of them, eight wonders or seven wonders of the ancient world, but it should be. It's a beautiful structure. And as they pass by and Jesus moves from confronting all these religious leaders into what will become the rest of his holy week, he leaves the temple, and that's where we find them in Matthew 24. And I'm going to read through it, teach through it, implications, and hopefully that will inform the church meeting. Amen? How do we carry on in times of trouble as we seek to finish well? Matthew 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its building. Do you see all these things, he asked Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? It's one question. The second question is, and what will be the sign of your coming age and of the end of the age? There's two questions they're asking there. When will this happen, these things? These things are talking about the destruction of the temple. And I believe verses 4 through 35 address that. The second question is, when will be the sign of your coming age and that you're coming in the end of age? That's the second question. And 36.4 really talks about this idea that Jesus doesn't know. I don't know. But stand firm. So let's talk about verses 4 through 35. Many scholars actually think it's commingled, that there's end time stuff happening in the midst of it, but I actually believe that 4 through 35 speak specifically into the impending destruction of the temple that happened at 70 AD. Jesus' time where he died is arguably somewhere between 30 and 33 AD. Are you with me? All right. I think it's in this whole section of scripture because in verse 34, Jesus says, truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things these things referring to the question of these things in verse 2, the destruction of the temple. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Does anybody know what the biblical number for a generation is? That's a biblical number of completion, 70. How long were the Israelites in the wilderness? And that's when a generation passed away so a new generation would come in. It's 40 years. If Jesus died in 33 and the temple was destroyed in 30, uh, 70, how long is that? 37. Pretty close. 
Jesus is pretty close. This is him operating his prophetic realities. He's, he's giving an immediate prophecy of destruction of the temple. But what about all the cosmic language that's happening in this? Well, this is a genre uh, of ancient Jewish apocalypticism or apocalyptic tree. I don't, how do you say that word? It's apocalyptic genre. It's an apocalyptic genre where it uses poetry and symbols to speak of current events and impending events on a cosmic scale so that the reader or hearer can witness this reality and actually experience God's jurisdiction over history. It's less about end times. That's actually prophecy. Apocalypticism is about poetry and symbols and an event that feels somewhat immersed in the cosmic scale. Does that make sense? I think the best analogy I think about this, and it's going to fall short dramatically, is like a song about a story. Uh, stories like Jolene, Dolly Parton, Ray LaMontagne, Stan, Fast Cars, Tracy Chapman. There's like tons of songs. Jack and Diane, <coughs> Cats in the Cradle, Last Kiss, The Cavaliers, Pearl Jam. Remember that? You hear this story. You're like, where, oh, where can my baby be? You know that? Pina Colada. It's a story, right? It's, that's a story. Or Escape, I guess it's by Jimmy Buffett. Uh, Hold Up by Beyonce. Anybody like Beyonce? Boy Named Sue, Johnny Cash. Stan, Eminem. Okay. It's like where you hear the story, and you start thinking about the story, and you're like, this is a story about a certain people, but it also feels like my story, and it also feels like the story of the world. You get kind of immersed in this experience, so it is about a specific people. That's kind of like an example of like, that's how the affect of, of apocalyptic writing is. If you don't get it, it's really hard to understand. I'm still learning a lot about it. But again, there is some implications and warnings. So I'm going to keep reading as Jesus talks about the destruction temple. Jesus answered, verse 4, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but to see it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Again, this is cosmic language, but the key here is that this is the beginning. He's just talking about this next few decades. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated all nation, by all nations because of me. In that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. This is a huge verse. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. This is all alluding to what the events are happening in the book of Acts. It has implications for us, but that's what's happening. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world, as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This is what we see in the book of Acts, early epistles. There's false prophets arising, false teachers, messiahs. There's false teaching, almost a lot of the themes of the epistles later in the New Testament are about false teaching. There is wickedness, as we see, that are drawing people away from the Lord. And then persecution obviously explodes uh, soon after church grows. So when you see in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, this is verse 15, which is a footnote for what book? Anybody know what book that's in? Daniel. Spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then, those, let, then let those who are in Judea 
flew the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down and take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not play, take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never be equaled again. So I'm going to address that phrase, because that phrase feels like, no, this is the end of the world. That, that phrase, unequal from the beginning of the world until now, is actually a common phrase in the Hebrew Bible. It's used uh, to compare a lot of priests, uh, not priests, but kings, like Josiah, he was the greatest king, unequaled until now. But then there was Hezekiah, and he was the greatest king, unequaled until now. Prophets use hyperbole, they use exaggeration to emphasize truth. Case in point, does Jesus really want you to gouge your eyes out? Does he want you to hate your mother and father? Or mother and father-in-law? He doesn't. He doesn't. He's using hyperbole to emphasize truth. He's talking about how cataclysmic it will be for the people of Israel to lose this national heritage that is their temple. It's going to feel like everything before them has crashed down, even worse than the exile they experienced centuries before. So the temple was also their treasury, and they used this treasury in the next couple of decades to fund their war against Rome. There was a Jewish-Roman war, and in 70 AD, the, the emperor Titus besieged Jerusalem. He levered apart the temple. If you have anybody in Jerusalem, you'll see it's still pieces of the temple just taken apart. It took him about two weeks. Pillaged its treasury, and then offered sacrifices to Zeus on the altar. This is that desolation that causes consolation. It's a cataclysmic event, and to them, it felt like there was great distress, unequal from the beginning of the world until now. This is why he tells them, when you see this happening, flee. Get out of there. When Rome comes, run. Verse 22. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, there he is. Don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you this ahead of time. And this is what's happening in the birth of the church. These people are saying, I am the Messiah. There's records showing these early messiahs saying, it's me. It wasn't Jesus. Jesus died. It's not less about Hitler or Stalin or Mai Zedong or Saddam Hussein, King Jong-un, Bin Laden, Trump, Biden. This is a lot about what's happening in Jesus' day. There are implications for us. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the wilderness, don't go out. Here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there's a carcass there, let vultures will gather. Immediately after the stress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and heavenly bodies will be shaken. What scripture is that from? It should have a footnote in your Bibles. That's Isaiah. Isaiah is, it's in there too, yeah, I know. I'm trying to get people help. I do know it's there. I get it. I actually wrote those slides. Yes, thank you. But it feels good to have the answer, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so Isaiah, if you look at this passage and expand upon it, Isaiah writes this. He's writing there a time uh, about the fall of Babylon. And he writes this, listen, a noise in the mountains, 
like that of a great multitude. Listen, an uproar among the kingdoms, like nations amassing together. Do you feel the weight of it, even though he's talking about a certain event? The Lord Almighty is mustering an army for war. They come from faraway lands, from the ends of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his wrath to destroy the whole country. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Then as that section concludes, it says, Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the pride of the glory of the Babylonians, will be overthrown by God, like Sodom and Gomorrah. And less than a century after the empire began, Babylon is sieged by, does anybody know who sieged Babylon? The Persian, the Medes, yep, the Medes, Cyrus, the King Cyrus, who conquered it. Jesus quotes this verse to represent the thundest reality that's going to happen to Jerusalem. Because of Jerusalem's collusion with and against Rome on different levels, they have now become like Babylon. When a country seeks to pursue this nationalistic fight over loving our neighbor and our enemies and the immigrants, God's forces come against that. We see that. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This has to be end time stuff. It just has to be. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. I contest that Jesus is talking about his ascension. When you read the book of Daniel, he has this dream as if he ate some really good chili peppers. And he's confronted by this beast that's horrendous looking. And then there's this son of man who gets trampled by the beast. But then we see directly Daniel prophesy this in Daniel 7, which this is alluding to, illustrating. It says, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, and was led into his presence. First off, two things. He's going to the Ancient of Days, and Ancient of Days is the awesomest name for God there is, I think. If I had a band, I would try to name it that if it wasn't like seemingly blasphemous, but it was such a great name. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations of people of every language worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is about... Jesus' ascension to God and them experiencing this. Because when is there a time where God's anointed one was destroyed? Anybody know? Where he was utterly pillaged and destroyed. Can anybody think about that? It's not Holy Thursday, it's good. Friday, you can take the risk, Courtney. I knew you knew it. I knew you were like, I should just say it. It's the cross. This is about the cross. Other people don't agree with me, and they might be right, and I could be wrong. But when you think about Daniel's dream, he's going to the Ancient of Days. I could be wrong. People see there's issues with this view. There's also issues with other views that this is all eschatological. In the end, the implications are still fine. We all love Jesus. But I really, this is about Jesus rising up, defeating the beast, and sitting with the anointed one this Ancient of Days. This is the saving gospel. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you will know summer's near. And even so, when you see all these things, again referring to their question, when will these things happen in verse 2, you know that life is near right at the door. 
truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And then's a segue, in my opinion, to this idea that we don't know when the final coming will come. We just don't know. I would encourage you to continue to read and do the work for yourself. I just felt like sharing that a bit. Just it's a little bit scholarly, but it's it's I think it's good to understand what's happening in Matthew 24, or at least to begin to see what's happening, what Jesus is encouraging his people, because there are some true implications that mattered for those who are about to believe and for us today. And the first implication is this. In times of trouble, in times of distress, our call is to stand firm. Don't bail on Jesus. Just hang on. That's verse 13. Nothing more. When times are that bad, just hang on. It doesn't say, go do a thousand things. It's like, just hang on. Isn't that a bit freeing? That you actually have freedom just to hang on. When you feel persecuted, when you're experiencing teachings that might be off, don't lose Jesus. That's huge. That is how we finish well. There are seasons where we just need to hang on. Can I get an amen from somebody in the house? Second implication. When we can, to share this gospel of hope, that Christ died, very important. Christ is risen, so important. Christ is with us, vitally important. Sometimes we relegate evangelism to this idea that we share these certain steps about a historical event that is the most important event in history. But part of sharing hope is sharing that God is with us in this room right now. That through the Holy Spirit, God is with us and God is with you. Hey, Kimmy, how you doing? God is with us. You understand that? And this hope works. Hope is, even in that song, it talked about this anticipation. Hope Hope is a sustaining anticipation of a bright tomorrow that sustains us today. We have to sustain hope as hope sustains us. We have to remember that even my bad days are good days because there's a better day. There's the analogy that Jesus used about a birth, and I, I'm a man. I don't know if you knew that. I'm a giraffe, but I'm a man. I've never given birth to a child. I don't want to act like when you don't, hey, man, by the way, you don't say, hey, we're pregnant. You say we're expecting. My wife is pregnant, by the way. That's a little tip for you guys. My wife is pregnant. Um, we're expecting. But I think when you think about it, when you have hope in the midst of these pains that you have, mothers, that hope highlights these bright little shining lights that happen in the midst of our time of trouble. Like you who believe in a brighter tomorrow will start to see glimpses of a God's brightness today. You'll feel that baby kicking and remember, oh yeah, this is a bright day. So much so that you'll even be able to partner in God's brightness and become lights yourself, letting your light shine. We can become glimpses of light today because we know there will be a brightness. And ours is just a participation. It's not completely on us, but we get to join God in this good work. Those are the implications for standing firm or for carrying on. Is to stand firm and to share hope. One warning. One warning. When we push out this love and when we push out Jesus' hope, our house, like the temple, eventually will come to ruin. That is the warning for all of us. When we become fixated on other things than the kingdom, when we're able to stand firm, when we lose the joy of our salvation and the joy that comes with sharing good news, our houses 
will become desolate and could fall into ruin. It could be a slow death, but it's a death nonetheless. So the call is, again, to stand firm and to share hope. Amen? Amen. And that's who we want to be as a church. People who provide hope for others and who will stand with others. Okay, that's Matthew 24. It was a hard one. I feel good about it. I got a lot of help from Tim Mackey again. Just want to name that reality. Give credit where credit's due. So this is where we're going to segue into the crew meeting. I'm going to give our next steps for this message. Larry, it's like all the way at the bottom. Actually, I'll give them later. Larry, we're fine. Let's do a crew meeting because it is part of the message. Oh, yes, you can, Kimmy. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Stop it. Just stop it. Um, so how have we experienced love and hope through our church in the last year? This crew meeting is happening at the beginning of our second ministry slash fiscal year. And so I just want to take a moment while you're hanging out, drinking coffee, maybe get a refill. How have you experienced God's love and hope in this last year in and through this community? In and through this community. Take a moment just to share that, and then we could popcorn, maybe some celebrations. All right, we're going to carry on, probably have about like 10 more minutes. Um, I feel like we're good on timing, right? How's everybody doing? It's a little late. 11.30, so let's go. Any, any popcorn and celebrations? The mm. island. The island, the retreat. Yeah. That's really good. Yes, being welcome in other people's homes. Larry, but yeah, I try. Yeah, I do. She's really good at it. Better than me. Um, I heard some good. I'm not going to share it explicitly, but just people walking with other people and the times of trouble that come with life. That really is where there's beauty, even in the midst of brokenness. I've appreciated that we go to the beach. Still, I know it's like we're. I know we're supposed to do church. I'm always like. Hey, can we go to the beach again at leadership team? You're like, no, we got it. <laughs> Let's keep meeting here. And like, yeah, which is good. But I just love that we still create spaces in our year. Okay. So I just want to name some goals of the last year. We'll talk about some goals this year. But our goal of last year was to basically create this church, maintain a sustainable budget, and witness a few people being baptized. And the last year, this is include the five that we had at the retreat, those five little ones. We had six people baptized, um, which was really great. Um, and then, um, yeah, it's just really good. I'm just celebrating what God's doing. Uh, I think part of these membership meetings is you talk about the finances piece. And so I'm going to walk us through that. We want to be transparent with our finances. And uh, yeah, so it is a slide coming. Essentially, over the year, we received $224,000 last year. So I just want to thank everybody for making that happen. That's incredible. We, we, uh, is it not there? Unfortunately, <laughs> so the document, which I made some edits to, the computer shut down, didn't save the edits, and so I'm just going to talk through our finances and email it to you all at some point for transparency's sake. We're not hiding anything. Um, so 
We received, we, last year we had a $190,000 budget. That's what we actually spent. I don't know the numbers offhand, obviously. Um, we give 10%. Our salaries represented uh, about 53 to 55% of that. There's ministry expenses, and then there's administrative expenses, which is your insurance, communication, as well as uh, regular admin. So long story less long, I'll probably show this slide again next week. Uh, but our, you know what, I'm just going to show this slide next week because I, it's too many numbers for me to go through. We essentially budgeted this year uh, based on a $213,000 budget plus 20K. Why do we say that? Is we pull from our savings to pay for the Catalina retreat so that we all can go. And our savings, we currently have $60,000. That's what we have. And we have a $213,000 budget because we think we received about really $213,000, $210,000 maybe because there was certain gifts that I think were given. I know that were given or allocated the budget, though we don't have preferred giving. So we want to have a tighter budget. That said, our um, staffing has increased because we now have a part-time person six hours a week, administration. Deb's here 16 hours a week, which is an increase from our interim that we had last year. And, and then there's still my role. So that's, that takes up about, I think, 54% of our budget. Average is about 50 to 60%. Some go 40%, depending on how much money is given. Yeah. Uh, we, have, we try to be really good stewards of our budget. If you think about it, a $213,000 budget for a part-part-time and a part-time and a full-time, you think of your rent, your ministry expenses, the fact that you're giving 20 or 10% of that, which is about $22,000, $23,000. Not bad. I think we're doing a good job. I've talked to some other pastors of churches of different sizes, and um, they're very staffed. And I think we're doing good. I think we're doing strong because we're not trying to be all things to all people. I will definitely get this document to you. I'm really sorry about that. That's just how it goes. And I think I'm illustrating the message. I got my hope in Christ. I'm standing firm. <laughs> um, that said, I would encourage, we have about 26 households that give. And I think we have about 30, Steph and I were talking, maybe 34 households that are part of this church. And giving, generosity, it is part of our discipleship. I'm not gonna give a big conversation about the tithe, but if, um, if you're not giving, I would encourage you to give. And I would encourage everybody to give consistently, whether it's monthly or quarterly, and to give sacrificially. And I'm not gonna dictate to you, I'm not gonna throw percentages out. I, I want you to have a conversation with God about that. What does it mean for us in our household to give sacrificially and then finally, this is kind of a soft ask, but to give a year-end gift. If, that, if you are into giving year-end gifts, we would gladly receive it. If someone you know wants to give a year-end gift, we would gladly receive it. No problem. But, to, but, but I don't want to just ask for year-end gifts. I want to ask our crew to give consistently and faithfully and sacrificially. Because our action plan for this year is to expand our children and family ministry uh, and that's, uh, we've taken a great step towards that. And it's not just hiring Deb. We're doing things. We're investing in the kids throughout the week. There's a discipleship group for young gals, a discipleship group for these rugged young boys. Um, we're excited about that. And our second thing is we, we want to pray for church growth. Church growth. That's the growth of our mission, the growth in arenas of discipleship, growing baptisms, and to grow our crew. And, and um, elephant in the room is there are a lot of empty chairs here. And there has been, in the years, this false identity that comes with numbers in church. I totally get that. 
But I was, as I was talking with Courtney last night, we like to throw parties, and we believe the more the merrier. Like, we're here because we believe there is a message of hope here that is not just for you, but people in your orbit. So one of the final questions I want to ask is, what are some of the primary ways we could probably see more people come in these doors? I'd love for you to consider that. Maybe just to have a brief conversation, to popcorn it with somebody beside you. Yeah. Your tithe? Oh, the church's tithe. Our 10%, well, it varies year to year as we discern it. Uh, we give a lot of year-end gifts ourselves. Uh, right now, it goes to people in our community in benevolence. It goes to missionaries, some missionaries. Uh, I can only reflect on last year. We haven't given a lot. Yeah, like, so uh, this year, in terms of giving, there's been a little bit given for, like, <laughs> strong families, Malawi, thank you. It was on the slide. <laughs> Strong Ferries, Malawi, and then we, as a leadership team, discern that. And a support, and a support team, we discern that. But yeah, it, just, it doesn't go, it tries to go outside. of. There is a small portion that we use to give to the retreat, like $1,000, $1,400, because it was people outside of our church that we brought in. So there's, but most of it goes outside of the retreat, or outside of the church. Yeah. Cool? Yeah. It, it's also helpful to note that in our somewhat, it's, I don't know if it's a shoestring budget, but our accounting, we have accounting people who are volunteer, our bands are volunteer, our Sunday's coordination is volunteer, our sound person is volunteer. Uh, most churches pay for some arena of that. So when you think about, and of course it is a great way for our bands to serve, and we believe it's a gift for them, for us, but it's still a sacrificial gift just like everybody serving is a sacrificial gift. So that, that, that's something to be helpful to know. I think it's a great investment. And the third thing we want to do is to discern our denominational covering. That's just something we've been in a conversation. We're going to a conference in a week or two weeks with some of our leadership team just to talk about what is our denominational covering. We are a flood church plant currently. We love it, and we, we're free to be a flood church plant for as long as we want to be or to discern another thing, or even what a denominational cover is. What, what is our larger network? It's something we've, we've just been praying about. It's a very broad conversation. Uh, nothing against flood. We're just trying to see what that means. Greg? Why is that important? Yeah, it's important. Um, sometimes autonomy if, with, uh, dismisses accountability. It's important to have accountability when it comes to church leadership, for there to be a network who cares and supports for us, but also um, who also we can provide us helpful feedback and even accountability at times. We do have an advisory team uh, that functions as somewhat of a pastor to our leaders and pastors, our shepherds. Um, but actually, that question is a good, important, good question because we're actually going to discern also, is it important? That's part of the discernment process. But that's what the, argue, that's what the polemic is. Make sense? Yeah. Any other questions? It starts September through August. Yes, that's our fiscal year.
Great question. So we're beginning our fiscal year. Any other thoughts, questions? We want to be as transparent as possible. Absolutely, yeah. I love it, yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I miss him too. Yeah. It's good. It's called S2. It's in Arizona. If you want to go for some reason, it's November 8th through 10th. Like, I want to check it out. Come. We'll, we'll figure that out. Yeah, it's, um, it's part of our, our conference. And Jerry Jenkins is now the new uh, president of Converge, so I'm excited to see him. Uh, and right now, currently, it's me, Greg, Carrie, Courtney, and Pastor Deb who's going. Yeah, that's good. November 8th through the 10th. Let's do it. Um, it's a great investment. Time away together, is, as we found from the retreat, is amazing. Okay. One of the areas and, that we're discerning as, as a leadership team is discipleship. We know that our heart for discipleship is to hear from God listening, this idea of listening to God and others this year. So that can mean a few things. It can mean an alpha group, uh, which is a really tried and true process of helping people seek the faith. Uh, we've We've stepped in arenas of like discipling young kids, but we're just discerning what that could look like for our church. What are the next arenas of discipleship for us? And here's one thing I will say about this, and this may be a diatribe. Sometimes when people think of discipleship, they get caught up in this content slash program thing. When we talk about listening to God, it's risky, it's hard, it's vulnerable. You can control books you read. You can control programs. You really can't control the process of hearing from God, but we actually think that's where the good stuff is. I'm actually in a meeting this afternoon uh, about what it means to even this year to think about the, the prophetic books so that we can learn more and more what it means to practice hearing from God for ourselves on behalf of one another. Just want to end that diatribe. Uh, leadership teams discerning our expanding mission. Next week, we're actually going to take a time in our gathering to discern collectively, and I'll have a slide for you about our giving as well, if I discern that. Of, of at that means, and uh, we're reading a book, and we're talking about what it means to uh, to lead out in pastoral care. I'll end with some dates because it's getting late. Uh, our sermon series for Christmas is about creativity. It's um, kind of more of a topical series, if you know that language. We've been in the book of the Bible for a year, and this one we're going to talk about what it means to be creative. Advent means arrival. We are encouraging people just to arrive and show up. And to, we're going to create, try to create something new each and every gathering during Christmas thing for others. And there's biblical emphasis for it, of course. Uh, and I'm really excited about it. There'll be a kids concert in it, as well as child dedications on the 4th. Uh, there's going to be an extended Christmas set on the 18th. And Christmas Eve, we are going to meet on Moonlight Beach at 4 p.m. If you're in town, I would love for you to join us. We used to do this years ago. I'm excited about that. And then we're going to end the year on the beach. We're actually going to begin the year on the beach. Last year, we kind of took off on the, the first Sunday of the year. I'm going to kind of do that. We're going to meet on the beach that day just to be together on that. So we're going to start out just on the first, meet on the beach, 10 a.m. There won't be a homily. I don't, maybe I'll, get a, I'll probably get a traveler coffee or something. We're just going to hang out on the beach that morning together. That way it kind of reinforces the rest that all of our teams want to have over that break and somebody I know too, but still create a space for us to be together and celebrate a new year, all right? We're still discerning the message series for the following year, but I just wanted to uh, 
encourage us to pray for our church as well as ask any lasting questions. Any questions? Sweet. So our next steps before we pray is simply this. I'm just going to read off the thing. To pray for persecuted believers around the world. That's one that makes sense in the passage. There are people who are experiencing extreme distress, and we want to pray for others as we pray for our church. Pray about the expanding mission of our church. We've heard the call. We've heard the love for strong families, which I love. We've heard the call for thinking through something more. And so we want to take time to collectively discern that. That said, we do have a care community happening on Saturday, this Saturday coming up in Village Park, taking care of some foster kids. We had it last time. It was so fun. Just four hours in the afternoon. If you want to come, join it. It's going to be great. All we do is play. And then don't give in to economic fear. Please give financially. You can give at thewatersedge.org slash give. That's our call. And so I just want to take a moment. We'll end the gathering just praying. I'm going to open it. I'm going to create space for us to pray, and then we'll finish. Amen? So, Lord, we are grateful for this church. We are so grateful. God, I love this church. Such a good time. I love each person here. I'm glad that I know them. I pray that uh, in light of the truth of who you are, the living God, the defeater of death, that we would live Christ, that we would live Christ today, that we would love others in Christ. Thank you for each person who makes this place happen. Thank you for the support that you've shown us, God. And so now we just want to pray for different arenas for your church, whether it's the mission, whether it's our kids, whether it's our discipleship. Just take a moment just to pause to hear from you and then just popcorn a prayer. Lord, would your kingdom come in and you fill in the blank? Yeah, Lord, build us up. Build up your church. Thank you for the gift of one another. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So I'll get that slide to you next week. Be great. And uh, if you have any questions, we're an open book. Casey's a chairperson of our board. You have a pen? Oh, communion. Yeah. Let's end with communion together. Yes. Thank you, Lord. We're going to end just taking the bread and the cup. And you may be asking, like, why do we always have these bread and cups? Well, there's still some left over from the pandemic, and I don't want to waste them. They have a pretty long shelf life. So, so on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread. He gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to disciples. And he said, take and eat in remembrance of me. Take and eat. In the same way, he took the cup. He said, this cup represents the, blood, the cup of the new covenant. My blood shed on your behalf. Take and drink. And God's people said, amen. Amen. Good reminder. All right, next week, I guarantee it's going to be shorter. I promise. Have a great day. Yeah.